0: Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, host of Innovation Hub. For many in the U.S., the war in Afghanistan feels like it's winding down, with troops expected to be mostly out of the country in two and a half years. But inside the military, there is another war being fought, a war against suicide. This year, we've seen suicides among those on active duty climb so dramatically that they now outnumber deaths of those in combat – what is going on? Is there something about the war in Afghanistan that is breaking soldiers down? And what does it tell us about that war? Joining me on the phones is Bob Burns, reporter for the Associated Press, who has reported extensively on the rise in suicides. Bob Burns, thanks for being here. Glad to be with you. So first, I'm wondering if you can just lay out some of the numbers here that you yourself have investigated. What, what's the magnitude of the problem that we're talking about?
1: Well, the total number of suicides in active duty had leveled off the previous two years in 2010 and 2011, um, albeit at a very high level, Um, and then it turns out that the number is now rising significantly this year. Um, For example, we found out that in the first 155 days of the year, there had been 154 suicides among active duty troops. That's uh, through June 3rd, so it's a very current number, and uh, this is 18% more than in the same period last year.
0: Do you think that that is shocking to people even inside the military, or that they have had a sense that this is a really serious problem that's getting worse?
1: Uh, leaders of the Army had said as recently as last year that, that they thought the numbers may be peaking last year, and it sort of looked that way because it was roughly the same number in 2009, 2010, and 2011. So there is a surprise now that it's heading back up. In fact, um, the person who heads the Defense Department's Suicide Prevention Office told me in an interview that uh, they had thought that the numbers would be going down by now, instead they're going up.
0: So do they have reasons for this? You know, reasons that they think that this is happening? I mean, it's, it would seem like uh, the war in some sense would be winding down. We've heard from the White House, you know, this is the date at which we're going to get out in a couple of years. We're hardly going to have any troops there. You know, is the military thinking, here's why we think this is happening?
1: They don't really have an answer for it. And there's a lot of theories. And in fact, there's, I think, probably more and more public discussion about it now. In fact, um, I guess it would be Coincidental, but there is a, uh, a major public conference next week on this subject, um, sponsored jointly by the Defense Department and the Veterans Administration, where both um, leaders of both departments, uh, Leon Panetta as the Defense Secretary and Eric Shinseki as the head of the VA, are going to speak on this topic and are going to have a lot of other experts over three days discussing uh, just what you raised, which is what's really behind this and what can I do about it uh, more effectively.
0: I think one of the really interesting things that you raise in your article is that it really is – it's not just suicide that, that is on the rise here. Um, you say that it's also sexual assaults, it's alcohol abuse, it's domestic violence. So that it's not just limited to this one particular thing and, and is there any sense of, of, of what's spurring these things and how do you also – how do you know those numbers, the domestic violence numbers, the sexual assault numbers?
1: The Army, in fact, has published a rather extensive study of all of these issues, behavioral issues, um, criminal activity, uh, discipline issues, and so forth, that they've looked at closely and been quite open about it. Um, and indeed, as you say, these are apparently interrelated problems, and generally speaking, people point to for sort of the accumulated stress of, of war over a whole decade.
0: When you talk to just regular people who are enlisted is there a sense that it's the multiple deployments that, that is partially really breaking people down?
1: There's a sort of a division of opinion on that. Um, I think some time ago that seemed to be more accepted wisdom was that it was the, the multiple deployments. But um, some people now are, are looking at numbers that suggest that uh, they look at the fact that people who have never deployed, in fact, are also committing suicide. So there's a, sort of a mixed bag of signals as to what's behind this.
0: I want to ask you one other thing about about this. I've seen some reporting, I know CBS News has done some reporting on it, that even though we're talking about active-duty military uh, committing suicide at this very high rate, that many of the people who have committed suicide were not actually people who saw combat. Is that is that your understanding as well?
1: Yeah, that was the point I was trying to make was that, in fact, uh, many of them are in that category, having not deployed or not been in, directly involved in combat um, so how do you explain that? Well there there are other, you know, influences that are that are leading people to this. Uh some people point to economic stress, personal financial stress and, and those sorts of things. Uh but as to finding you know, putting putting your finger on one reason, um one explanation, it's so far, you know, eluded that.
0: Uh, we're also joined by Juliet Kayam, Boston Globe columnist and former Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and and Juliet Kayam, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. we, we hear these numbers, these amazing numbers from Bob Burns. Is this symptomatic of a culture that's breaking down where something starts to, the ball starts
2: rolling and other people around the people who are affected start seeing it and they in turn are affected themselves? Well, I think just to repeat what Bob was saying, I think it's sort of all of the above right now in terms of explanations for what's going on. Um, You know, we can look at the wars and how they're fought and the multiple deployments and the nature of combat duty. But as Bob makes clear, and he's done more than, I think, any other journalists to sort of bring these numbers out and sort of what's happening to the military as a cohesive unit, right, as a strong mental and physical cohesive unit, um, you know, how do we explain uh, the fact that uh, a lot of these folks never saw combat? And I think one thing to just add into the mix of the all of the above explanations is that, uh, you know, to, to feed a war um, or wars for 10 years with a voluntary um, force uh, requires recruitment. And uh, there has been a lot of speculation about the nature of uh, recruitment and recruitment standards and whether there's too many variances being allowed uh, that allow people with uh, conditions or preconditions of um, instability or or, or, or mental problems to uh, join the military and then under the stresses of the military are then more likely uh, to commit suicide. So that's another factor. And I think, you know, there's still a a prevalence within the military. We certainly have seen that in some uh, statements made by um, pretty senior people within the military that that uh, you know sort of bucket you know sort of suck it up attitude about mental uh conditions and mental distress uh that really the the Pentagon has has, has got to make uh, seeking help and the community of, of often men that, that serve in combat, uh, to help each other, not just physically, right, but also in, in the mental, uh, angst that they, uh, that they suffer. Uh, and that includes that their leadership embracing, um, uh, mental health, um, uh, uh, support as well as not punishing people for coming forward, uh, because they are showing signs of depression or whatever else, which would be totally understandable given the conditions that many of these men and women find themselves in. And, and Bob Burns, I want to go to you, but first I'm going to read actually
0: a little bit um, of Juliet's last column, where she talks about this kind of sort of buck up, you know, be tougher. A feeling. This is from a Major General Dana Petard, a, a commander at Fort Bliss, who blogged uh, last month. Quote, I am personally fed up with soldiers who are choosing to take their own lives so that others can clean up their mess. Be an adult, act like an adult, and deal with your real life problems like the rest of us. Bob Burns, I'm wondering what is the sentiment like um, in when people think about suicide in the military? Is it this feeling of that this is this is something that's done by weak people?
1: That's exactly the the problem, and it's a stigma, as they say, and it has uh, it's. Been uh, a fact for a long time, and uh, the you know the new emphasis by the by Leon Panetta and others to get get a a grasp on this problem has uh, really talked a lot about this stigma problem. Um, Panetta himself, for example, although they didn't publicize it, he sent a a note to his most senior aides this last month, um, saying that you know suicide was the most urgent and uh, one of the most complex issues facing the Defense Department. And he put his finger on this stigma issue by saying that um, that commanders should never tolerate actions that, in his words, belittle, haze, hum- humiliate, or ostracize anyone who needs help or is, is trying to seek help. And so he he obviously is aware of this problem as well.
2: Yeah, that it's a cultural that it's a cultural issue, Julia. Julia. And I mean, and adding to this, I mean, I think Panetta. Uh, I think Bob will agree. I mean, I think the Pentagon is taking this seriously as a, as, as a problem for them, a problem for their folks, as, as well as I think a national security issue. We have an all-volunteer force. And if we want people to fight and uh, to join, uh, the military, um, uh, there's, you know, a sense that the military takes care of its own. And, and if there begins to be this sense that, oh my gosh, it's filled with a bunch of abusers and people who have mental disorders or, and, and they're not getting the help they want, uh, it will impact or it could impact uh, recruitment for an all-volunteer force or – as I suggested earlier, you know, make us lower standards in a way that's not good for our for our military. So, so they are looking at this both as a sort of humanitarian effort, to help, you know, to help uh, men and women in need, but also strategically for for uh, national security reasons. Because, um, you know, we may be ending some wars now, but you know, there might be wars in the future. Uh,
0: Julia Kiam, I'm wondering what your sense is about how many mental health professionals we have working with uh, active duty and veterans. Mm-hmm. There's certainly been a lot of talk about cutbacks
2: in the right. Department of Defense. Are there enough people who are sort of on watch for these signs of trouble? Well, uh, you know, the, the Pentagon, I don't have the numbers in front of me, um, but the, the Pentagon has uh, hired more mental health specialists and actually deployed a lot of them or have them working in a lot of the training facilities and, and, the, and the pre-deployment um, areas within the United States. But you you make a great point, which is we haven't even gotten to vets yet. Um, You know, so so this notion that so so we have the active uh, duty members who are sort of wards of the Pentagon. And then you have this million plus group of people who are either out of the who are out of the military, who are getting mental health services in a very, very um, stressed uh, VA system, uh, who often don't sort of join on to the veterans uh, systems or are getting, you know, sort of piecemeal health care. We don't have a good sense of their suicide rates. There are some numbers out there. One of the reasons why we don't, and this is a, a real policy fix that could be fixed by, uh, 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 by Congress, um, is that states do not re- – often many states do not require um, – uh, in a death certificate, to say the uh, veteran status of the person who committed suicide, so Massachusetts actually requires it. our death certificates have whether we had served in the military or not um, so we don't have these numbers, so a lot of the numbers that we have are just sort of trying to figure it out and uh, big military states like Texas do not require it so you know my fear my concern is that there's probably the numbers are even greater in, in out in the out in the um uh, you know, the the vet the veterans' world. Bob Burns from the Associated Press, I mean, you've been
0: breaking ground on this story. Do you have the sense that Juliet has that there are huge numbers out there potentially that are really hard to access or interpret because the data just simply isn't good enough?
1: Well, if you're referring to the veteran community as opposed to the, uh, the active duty m- military, I think that's probably right. Juliet may know more about that than I do. Um but I think what's in, what's one important point to make is um, in the transition from being in the military to returning to civilian life, maybe where a lot of this difficulty lies in uh, the adjustment for people um and then also we have the the problem of the uh, economic difficulties i think uh which is why uh although there are suicides committed while people are deployed it's more more Prevalent when they return home, either to continue in, in uniform or to get out of uniform.
0: Uh, you know. Finally, I wonder. Historically, Bob Burns, has this been a problem? Suicide in the military is this something that really has risen up in the last, let's say, five, ten years, or is this this a really chronic problem inside the military?
1: You know, I don't know the full answer to that. I I think that uh, less attention was certainly less public attention was paid to it. Um, before the war has accumulated over the past 10 years. And I'm not even certain, frankly, at this point, um, the degree to which the Defense Department kept track in previous wars like Vietnam. It's something that we uh, probably ought to look at. But for comparison purposes, uh, certainly they are now really forced to look at it much more more closely as to uh, where it's headed.
0: Bob Burns, National Security Writer for the Associated Press in Washington. Thanks so much for your reporting on this and for joining us. Thank you. And Juliet Kayam from the Boston Globe. Stay with us. Up next, we're going to stay with this topic and we're going to talk with the widow of a local soldier who took his own life. We'll hear what she's been through and what she's trying to do now to help families who have gone through the same experience. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio.
3: This program is on WGBH. Thanks to you. And Blake & Associates at Old City Hall, a Boston law firm with over three decades of experience in trust law, estate planning, and advocacy. They listen and understand the issues you face. BlakeLaw.com. And Welch & Forbes. Welch & Forbes is proud to be a multimedia sponsor on WGBH. Charlie Curtis, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager.
1: I think people see Welch & Forbes as a firm with a high standard of integrity due to the
3: relationship with the GBH family and with the shared common values. To learn more, visit wgbh.org slash sponsorship.
4: Toronto's begun construction for the 2015 Games, not the Olympics, the Pan American Games. They may bring in more than $100 million, but they're expected to cost 10 times that. And I can't think of any Broadway producer who puts on a show where you're only going to be taking in 10% of what you spend at the box office. Pan Am Toronto, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH.
3: Support WGBH right now, and you'll be entered to win a
1: trip for two to High Clear Castle, known on Masterpiece as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, a four-night stay at Vineyard at Stockcross in Newbury, England, and a private tour with brunch at High Clear Castle, hosted by the Lady of the House, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For your chance to win, visit
3: WGBH.org. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, host of Innovation Hub. We're talking today about new reports of high suicide rates in the military. And my next guest is Kim Ruocco, who joins us from her home in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Her husband, Marine Corps Major John Ruocco, killed himself seven years ago. He was a Cobra helicopter pilot who ran 75 combat missions during a five-month deployment in Fallujah, Iraq. He had struggled with depression in the past, particularly after a training accident in the 1990s when two Cobras collided midair and he lost four friends Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first, I want to get a sense, you know, in the lead up, but before before uh, your husband took his own life, did he talk to you about the war itself, um, his his time in Afghanistan, how he felt about it?
5: Well, he was in Iraq. Um, oh, sorry, and, I'm, yes. Yeah, um, he did, you know, um, but he had trained for that. He was ready to go. He believed in the mission. Um you know, and he, but he when he came back, all of the untreated, kind of unresolved trauma and loss that he had been exposed to over the years in the military kind of all came to a head, and in a culture where it's very difficult to ask for help um he he never got help early on when he had original trauma um exposure, and going to war brought that all to the surface, and when he came back from war really struggled and really um, didn't want to ask for help for fear of how everyone
0: would uh, see him. Do you feel like the, the military particularly or maybe even uh, the Marines in particular attach a stigma to uh, asking for help to saying there's a, there's a serious problem here? I
5: mean the stigma is is across all services it's particularly strong in the marine Corps, but you you're seeing it in all services in, in that you know we have they have lots of sayings that they live by you're only as strong as your weakest link uh death before dishonor um and you know just oh they want they are supposed to push through and persevere no matter how strongly you are suffering physically or emotionally so you know they it, it, it goes against their um thought process to to say I need help whenever they're suffering, whether it's a a physical injury or an emotional injury. So, um, you know, a lot of our guys are are suffering for a very long time before they actually are so desperate for help that they go to get help. And sometimes by waiting... over time, that it gets worse and worse. Your family becomes affected. Your career becomes affected. We, I heard earlier talking about issues of uh, sexual assault and violence and and addictions. I mean, these these are are not um, character disorders or people that come in, you know, um, with with illnesses. These are injuries of war, and they are they are illnesses that developed after exposure to trauma. You know, and some and so many of our uh, Marines and soldiers wait. So they're very sick to ask for help for fear of uh, what asking for help will mean for them. So by the time they they get the help, they're very sick, and it's difficult to help them at that point.
0: When you look around at uh, friends of his, at at other veterans, um, at other wives, do you get the sense that there is a lot of that sort of lingering effect of um, Iraq? You were talking before about those other things besides suicide that, that tend to be on the rise. What do you hear from other people in the community?
5: Well, it's interesting because at TAPS, we have about 3,000 survivors of suicide that are coming to us that are grieving the death in the military for suicide. Um, and I'm actually you know, putting together a panel for the DOD VA Suicide Prevention Conference that um, Bob mentioned earlier, and we're going to put some of our family members on a panel to tell their stories. And what I'm hearing from those families is that um you know that they, they, they their loved one are either coming home from combat or they 're suffering um, traumatic exposure in training or in just the lifestyle of the military and they 're suffering for a long time and it and it then it starts to really affect their relationship um, their ability to do their work well, but yet they 're still afraid to ask for help um, and so th- I, I worry about this and I worry about people that are coming back from. Um, the military and trying to reintegrate back into communities, and then on top of having um, a a injury of post traumatic stress and maybe depression, they're also having trouble finding jobs and reintegrating and reconnecting with their families.
0: And you know, I think one of the uh, very tough parts of this of your story um, is that you had asked your husband. You saw warning signs, right? And you asked yeah. him if he thought. He might be inclined to kill himself. Yes. What did he say to you?
5: He he said right out that he would he would never do that to the boys and I that he could never do that to the boys and I. Um, and you know at the time I think he meant it. I think he meant it when he said that. But when we hung, he and the last thing we, he said to me was that he was going to go get help. That he was going to get in the car and he was going to go on base and get help. But I think when he sat in that hotel room and he thought about, um, you know what it would mean. To get help, how it would change in the way people viewed him. He said to me on that phone that night that you know they're going to think that I don't want to go back to Iraq. They're going to think that I, I can't suck it up. They think I can't I can't hack it. No one's going to want to follow me um, into battle. Um, they're going to think that I'm 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 not strong. Um, and this is this is the sentiments of so many of our of our service members. That's their fear. Um, and so they they wait till they're very very sick before they ask for help. And when we're talking about, you know, some some guys who are suffering um, and then die by suicide who have never deployed and never seen combat, being in the military is extremely um, difficult on a daily basis. We ask a lot of our troops whether they're deployed or whether they're just training. I mean, sometimes the workup for training, sometimes for deployments, the training um, in general is very dangerous, very high stress. They're working long hours they're separated from their support systems they're actually asked to move every few years um and these are very difficult my my husband's first um trauma was in training you know he lost many many friends while in training for um uh to deploy to Bosnia and Somalia uh, back in the 90s and you know they none of them had deployed but yet all of them had um, psychological injuries from from that right. uh, portion of our
0: station. Right, so. and we talked about that before. That that yeah. a lot of suicides are among non people mm-hmm. who have not seen combat. But as you say, yep. that doesn't mean they haven't seen tragedy.
5: That yeah. tragedy and trauma, and and they also combined with the stigma of health seeking. They're in the same th- sort of. Scenario that our guys that are coming back from combat are.
0: And uh, Juliet Kayam, former assistant secretary at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, I saw you nodding as Kim Roko was talking about, you know, her husband not wanting to yeah. admit to people, like,
2: it's not that I can't do another deployment. You know, I, I'm right. strong enough, I'm tough enough to do it. Right. I mean, the, the, and, and Kim's story and, and what she's done with TAPS, I mean, I think that we, Um, Owe a lot to the family members like her who have come forward and said, uh, you know, my my husband or my spouse, you know, was was broken, but this didn't need to happen, right? That there were other other means, and I and I actually think the Pentagon is listening, despite you know statements by some you know very um, uh, you know sort of I would say old school thinking that you hear from some of the some of the. uh, army generals, um, or whomever else. I actually think the Pentagon has, has come to understand, uh, this, this notion that soldiers, um, are resilient um but they need some of the tools to become resilient and that includes sort of mental resiliency as well right so um and and getting them the help they need and having them understand that uh, or or having a system that lets them come forward um and seek the help to become resilient soldiers uh uh, uh without the stigma is is probably the the key not simply in DC at the Pentagon but you know dispersed throughout all the bases and all the forces and and, uh, you know, one other thing to what Kim raises is, is, Really important to remember the extent to which families are well aware. Um, there are more than hints about, uh, uh, where their, uh, family members, uh, are going or, or potentially might go. And, you know, there's a lot of groups in which, uh, you know, for your listeners, family members, um, can reach out to, um, you know, the, the Red Sox, for example, Foundation has this home base, which really does view the family unit as, as an important part of the, uh, help that, that soldiers need when they return, um, from either combat or the military. And I think that this sort of, you know, sort of whole of society approach to helping these soldiers who have fought for us and, and served for this nation uh, is really going to be uh, where we need to go, because we can't leave it to them. And we and, and to be honest, we can't really just leave it to the Pentagon. Uh, can you know, we, in, yeah, go can ahead. Can I add something? To sure.
5: Uh, one of the things, you know, that I we, we we're talking a lot about, you know, post-traumatic stress injuries and, and depression and all that. And uh, what, I, what I do worry about is how we we are starting to view our service members as a a sick that a group that's sick and maybe not capable of transitioning back. I've seen many many of our service members come back and get good clinical care and then be better than ever right. and come back and really be incredible employees and incredible husbands and incredible fathers. And you know, I think they deserve that. And I think, you know, we yes, they're injured, um, and yes, they may have illness that's related to their to their exposure. But but they can be treated and get back out there. And I think, as a community, and as families, and as the military and Department of Defense, everybody's got to rally around these these guys and say, you know, okay, what kind of care do you need? And sometimes it's more than resilience. You know, resilience that word, sometimes. Sticks in me because it, you know, it it insinuates that if you were resilient enough, that you could push through this, and if if you were, if you could be a bouncing ball and just, uh, you know, bounce back, then you would be okay. And some of these, you know, they come back sometimes really injured and really sick, and they need really intense clinical care to get back to their best selves.
0: And Kim, finally, I'm just wondering talk a little bit about the effect that this has had on your own family and yeah. you know your kids and and where they go when this kind of tragedy happens
5: well gosh you know I I was worried mostly about my boys I had my my children were eight and ten years old when um, my husband killed himself and you know he was their coach he was their hero he was always there for them and he was an amazing dad and so try try to figure out what to do with the children and how to get them through that is what really inspired me to, to go to TAPS and try to find help. And, um, and so within TAPS, we've, we've developed a whole program for survivors of suicide. We have camps for children where they get mentored with a military person um, who can then um, mentor them and stay with them. Um, We have programs for adults um, to help them with their grief and to really address the very different kind of grief process that you have after a suicide loss, the issues of stigma and spirituality and shame and guilt and all the questions you have. We have a suicide um, survivor seminar that we have every October. Um, And if anyone wants information, they can go at taps.org and um, anyone who's grieving the death um, um, in the military to suicide can attend that. Most of the costs are covered. We raise all our own money for that. So there's lots of help out there. There's lots of support. You can actually, you can get through it and get to the other side of grief and really, um, you know, live a joyful, very meaningful life with, um, you know, sometimes deeper connections than you ever thought were possible because of what you've been through. But it's it's quite a journey.
0: Kim Rocco, the widow of Marine major, John Rocco, a helicopter pilot who killed himself in 2005 between Iraq deployments. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Juliette Kayyem, Boston Globe columnist and former assistant secretary at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Thank you for being here, too. Thank you very much. And remember that you can join the conversation. Email us at emily at wgbh.org. You can find us on Facebook or you can send us a tweet at Emily Rooney Show. Up next, we delve into the notion of regret, why we feel it, and why it might actually be a good thing that we do. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
3: Funding for our programs comes from you, and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atreus Health. And Independent Lens. Learn how San Francisco dealt with the crushing AIDS epidemic that swept through the city in the early 80s. Don't miss We Were Here on Independent Lens, Thursday at 10 on WGBH 44. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource. Available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell.
4: On the next Callie Crossley show, the swinging, bebopping history of Boston jazz. In his new book, Dick Baca tells the story of America and jazz by focusing on Beantown between the late 30s and early 60s. It was an era when prohibition was long forgotten. Big bands were packing the dance halls. And local legends like George Ween and father Norman O'Connor were making an indelible mark on our city's jazz scene. That's today at one on WGBH.
2: The June Community Campaign
0: has ended here at WGBH.
1: Isn't that great? Super. Really,
4: really cool.
0: And you're responsible for its great success. For other ways to support your community through WGBH, visit wgbh.org slash volunteer. And thanks.
2: Great question. That is a great question.
3: And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question.
0: On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, host of Innovation Hub. We turn now to a conversation about regret. Why do we mentally revisit the mistaken choices that we've made? A TED Talk by the writer Katherine Schultz got us thinking, what do people regret most? Top six
6: regrets, the things we regret most in life. Number one, by far, education. 33% of all of our regrets pertain to decisions we made about education. We wish we'd gotten more of it. We wish we'd taken better advantage of the education that we did have. We wish we'd chosen to study a different topic. Other very high on our list of regrets include career, romance, parenting, uh, various decisions and choices about our sense of self, and how we spend our leisure time, or actually, uh, more specifically, how we fail to spend our leisure time.
0: So what do you regret? We will find out first from author Katherine Schultz, who has written The Wrong Stuff, a series for Slate, and she joins us on the phone from New York. Katherine Schultz, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. So I, I, w- I have to start with the story of the tattoo, which you talk about <laughs> in the TED Talk, you got it, and then you regretted it. Talk about the story.
6: Uh, sure. You know, the thing that's uh, that's funny about this particular story, it, it's obviously not unusual to regret getting a tattoo. In fact... Uh, you know, statistics suggest that something like 17% of people regret their tattoos. Uh, what was weird in my case was that I specifically tried to avoid having that happen. Uh, it was not a rash decision. I didn't, you know, get drunk at age 21 and go to some disreputable place and wake up the next morning and think, "What have I done?" No, I actually thought for three years uh, before getting this tattoo, and felt very certain about my decision, and and was really ready for it, and went in and got the tattoo and regretted it pretty much instantaneously so to me it's a it's kind of a great example of our capacity to misunderstand ourselves to mispredict our future emotional states And and that to me is what's fundamentally so interesting about regret, that we can uh, just just really kind of get our own selves wrong.
0: I'm wondering, you know, you've written this piece for this uh, series for Slate about the mistakes that high profile people have made when times when they've been wrong. And I wonder if there's a difference between sort of your regular everyday person and then the kind of regrets that are experienced by the people at the top.
6: Well, I suppose, I mean, there's certainly a a huge difference in the kind of things that that we can regret and the degree to which we experience that regret. I think if you're someone in a position of a lot of power, uh, the difference, of course, is the stakes of your mistakes. You were uh errors and the things you regret have the potential to have consequences for many more people than just you and your immediate circle. You know, my tattoo, uh, sure I regretted it, but it had no impact on anybody in the universe except for me. Uh, whereas if you are, you know, the head of a major financial institution, for instance, or the head of a country, and you make a mistake that you regret, potentially you are affecting the lives and livelihoods of literally millions of other people. So clearly there's a very big difference in
0: scale. Do you find that people, that high profile people tend to regret or tend to think a lot about uh, maybe missing time with their family because they have jobs, let's say, that really, really require their full attention almost all the time?
6: Well, you know, I think that that what we know from just kind of looking at the statistics about regret in general is that re- regrets about how we spend our time do rank reasonably high uh, among the kinds of things that people look back on life and say, oh, I wish I had done this differently. And certainly we know just anecdotally and from listening to the reasons that people step out of politics or really do change their lives, yeah, the the sort of very difficult choices and trade-offs we make around prioritizing our professional lives versus prioritizing our personal and social and familial lives do, I think, breed a certain number of regrets. That said, it's it's lower than I would have expected. If you look at the overall list of what people regret, family ranks significantly, but you know it ranks well above, for instance, financial decisions, which is what most people think they're going to regret. Uh, but it, But it doesn't rank quite as high as you would think, which I think on some level is just a reflection of... Our awareness that it is a difficult trade off. You know, we, we're glad we put all that time and energy into our careers. We just wish we had more time in life overall just to spread it out
0: better. I'm, I'm interested in those statistics on what we do and don't regret. In fact, you say, um, you said in the TED talk, okay, there are things that we beat ourselves up about what car should we get, and yet you look back and and ask people, do you regret that you made this decision about this car versus this decision? And it's just not something that people really think that much. People think about it on, on one end, thinking, if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to regret it. But then you look in the long run, and they don't tend to regret those kinds of decisions.
6: Right, almost not at all. In fact, there's a large body of research that suggests that once you make a, a purchasing decision, a financial decision, all kinds of cognitive mechanisms click into place to help you feel good about the, that decision. You know, we agonize between two different cars or whatever, and the moment we select one, suddenly we just start feeling very, very warmly towards it. And our our decision is kind of reinforced by all these various cognitive and intellectual mechanisms. Uh, so those kind of things that we spend a lot of time agonizing over really, once we get beyond the moment of the immediate decision, we don't care about almost at all.
0: We're also joined by uh, Matt Sofer, rabbi at Temple Israel in Boston, and by Cicela Bach, currently a senior visiting fellow at Harvard and author of, among other books, Lying, Moral Choice in Private and Public Life. Matt Sofer and Cicela Bach, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Matt Sofer, since you're a rabbi, you're really dealing with this on the, on the ground floor here. People are coming to you with regrets. What do you see in terms of what people tend to, over the long term, regret the most? What sort of gnaws at them?
4: Well, I spend most of my time in the kind of relational world and the interpersonal world. So, I suppose what I encounter most often is is uh, regret with regard to relationships, uh, both the things that we say and do, but also the things that that we that we don't say or or, or fail to do that um, that kind of lingers in in later in life
0: and when you say the things that we don't say are those generally positive things that we love people and people are and people don't are not expressing their feelings or are those negative things like you should stop doing this and no and somebody isn't telling the other person what kinds of things do people regret not saying
4: yeah i think very often uh, positive affirmations what we appreciate about what we appreciate um, about one another um particularly before departure or not seeing someone, I wish I said this, I wish I said that, um, and also uh, acts of generosity and love that we withhold. There are two kinds, within Judaism at least, there are two kinds, those are two categories, acts of commission, the things we do, and then acts of omission, the things that we just don't do, that linger.
0: Uh, Cicel Bach, I wonder, why do we feel regret? I mean, there must be some reason that it serves our brains and our purpose that we feel bad about something that's long past and very often cannot be undone.
7: Well, that's an excellent question, because imagine that we never felt badly about anything we had done. I think we would be some kind of monster, in fact. And psychologists often talk about extreme narcissists, you know, people who literally go through life without thinking that they have ever hurt anybody or ever done anything wrong. On the other hand, of course, we have the people who are endlessly, endlessly worrying about every minute thing they had done in the past. So there, too, we need to seek a balance so that we go through life, uh, in the future at least, uh, trying to be very perceptive about other human beings, those relationships, the kinds of choices we make, uh, so as not to have regrets later on, but we will always have some. And as I say, it wouldn't be so dangerous if we didn't have any. There is that song, you know, "Je ne regrette rien," Edith Piaf. Right? I regret nothing. Well, I would hate to meet a person who actually regretted nothing. And of course, she was just singing the song. I'm not saying that that was her life.
0: In, in your experience, are there cultures that deal with regret differently from other? cultures? Are there radical differences in different countries and in different areas in terms of this idea of regret?
7: I think that there are there are some cultures where people do worry more about the choices they've made, and this may have to do with religion or something else. But of course, also, there can be cultures where societies have been involved in terrible crimes. And I would say, you know, totalitarian societies, what do the citizens there feel afterwards? How do they deal with having been, you know, discriminated, for example, against people or sent them to concentration camps, done so much. Uh, so that there are definitely societies where that is a more serious uh, thing to worry about in the past for almost everybody.
0: And, and Catherine Schultz, you talk about how we deal with regret here in America. Do you think we have a sort of healthy attitude towards regret or, or how, do we, how do we think about this emotion?
5: I think
6: America is a, a, a kind of a almost like a relentlessly forward-facing nation. We're incredibly future-oriented. Uh, we're sort of the, I sometimes think of us as kind of the, the, the great nation of second chances. We believe we can just kind of wipe the slate clean and, and you know, sort of move west, reinvent ourselves, start over. Uh, and there's a lot of really wonderful things about that narrative, of course. But uh, it does mean, I think, that we are actually quite... Reluctant to examine our past, both individually and collectively as a society.
0: Rabbi Matt Sofer, I wonder if when you when people come to you, do you find that regret is crippling, or does it push people forward in their in their journey to be better better people?
4: Yeah, I think everything that Catherine's saying now and in her brilliant TED Talk really resonated with with my experience. Um, I I have experienced regret as a True agitator, but in the sense, in the literal sense, as something that stirs us inside and urges us forward. And in my own practice, I mean, I I sort of thank God that we have this voice within our conscience that calls us uh, to move. I'm kind of reminded of a, a teaching from the fifth century that says that every single blade of grass has its own angel that nudges us from heaven and says to it, grow. So I think regret, too, is, is a kind of calling of the conscience that urges us to learn and, and to grow.
0: So there, there is really something positive about, and as Cicela said, about, about remembering what you did wrong and trying to make it better in the future. Absolutely. And, and Cicela, I wonder, you know, we've talked about these different kinds of regret. Talk about, in your, in your sense, what are the different kinds of regret that exist out there?
7: Well, I think both Catherine and Matt have pointed to, you know, the, the the great difference between things we said and did that we now regret and all the things that we should have said and should have done and wish we had done. And sometimes the damage done is to other people, but sometimes it's just to ourselves. And some of the cases that, for uh, instance, Catherine mentioned, it's very much, why did I do this to myself? And therefore, uh, what has been pointed out here also, Trying to be more honest with oneself is almost the most important thing we can do in life. Just trying to look at ourselves more honestly and also listening to people who may actually be critical of us more than we would like. So, and then when, once we begin to look more carefully, then the question is, what can we do? Uh, there may be some things in the past we really would like to, to undo. And then, can we apologize? Or is it too late to apologize? If it is too late... Can we do something to help some people that that person we had hurt uh, in the first place would have been happy to have helped? There are so many things of that kind that we can do.
0: So if you, if you know somebody or you are somebody who regrets something terribly that you did, you know, let's say years ago, do you try to go back and figure out uh, what the pieces are in that puzzle? If there's somebody that can be apologized to you? do you think you try to go back or do you think you say, eventually I have to let this go?
7: I think both are true, and certainly, you know, there would be also, it would be very sad if one spent all one's time endlessly regurgitating all the things that one has done wrong. So one has to seek a balance, really, between a kind of self-respect and resilience and, as Catherine said, going on and doing something else. America, of course, is the country where so many people change their names, too. That's not possible in a lot of other countries. You change your name, you start a new life. And yet, it's so important also to be aware of the past and see what you can do. But I do think there has to be a real balance between, on the one hand, resilience so that you're not constantly wounded by your past actions and failures to act. And on the other hand, fellow feeling and caring about other people and seeing what you can do to be of more help and to be in a better relationship with them now than you may have been in the past.
0: Katherine Schultz, you know, let's go back to the statistics for a moment. When you talked about far and away, education was the thing that people regretted most. Did that surprise you? And to what do you attribute it?
6: Well, you know, it's actually really interesting, that statistic. Uh, The the psychologists who are responsible for kind of doing some of the real meta-analyses of of studies of regret and figuring out uh, what do we actually regret the most have a really interesting theory about why... These chief regrets are our strongest ones. And so the top ones are are education and career by a lot. That's 32% of all regrets and 22% of all regrets, respectively. And what they argue is that we experience regret most acutely in situations where we can vividly imagine a different alternative. So You know, in in scenarios where we made a choice and we didn't like the outcome, but we don't feel like we had a big range of choice, or it doesn't seem like our life would have turned out that differently if we had made the other choice, that actually diminishes our sense of regret. Whereas if we make a decision and it seems like, first of all, it had a huge impact and second of all, we can very clearly imagine having made different decisions, that's when the regret level really amps up. So it makes sense that people regret education because it's so easy to see or at least to to imagine, to theorize that our lives would be very different if we'd studied harder, studied something different, studied more, you know, gone on to college, uh, you know, Done, done something different academically. Um, and, and because we can imagine how much that might have changed our lives, we experience more regret around those things. So there's a real relationship between our sense of kind of agency, uh, you know, how much control we had over the decision and, and impact, how much we can imagine a different decision changing our lives and the degree of regret that we feel.
0: Rabbi Soffer, do you see that too, that people particularly regret the things that they can imagine, you know, if things had gone a little differently, if they had said something differently, if they had made a different choice, that their lives would have really been substantially different.
4: Sure. I hadn't thought about it in that kind of way, but that makes complete uh, complete sense. I was also thinking about what Dr. Bach was saying about um, – You know, making time for this kind of thing. We are in the Jewish community in mid-August, going to beginning a we're going to begin a month uh, journey toward the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Um, This is when we all kind of come together at at the same time. And one thing that's particularly um, interesting to me in my practice is the importance of of uh, the confession itself. Um, the culmination of regret, and in some ways, the transcendence of regret into action and into, um, into growth and the future, we do so in the plural. All of us say um, the the words that we confess. We do so all together in the plural regardless of whether or not we um, individually um, had a relationship with a particular um, action uh, that we committed. So I think there's also an important role of community and uh, people that are surrounding us in affirming our growth moving from regret into life.
0: And it's part of the idea of having regret in some sense built into a religion that you're able to sort of face it and say, okay, I acknowledge what I've done and now I'm ready to go forward and move on.
4: Exactly, yeah.
0: And one more question for you. You talked a little bit about the the things that you see as a rabbi that people regret most, which is the idea of saying uh, something to a loved one or not saying something to a loved one. Are there other things that in the past few years you've seen – people coming in to say they regret. I, I wonder about things particularly attached to, to modern life, uh, people spending
4: lots of time on the computer and maybe not as much time with their kids. Or What, what are you seeing? Well, I, I, I mean, what Catherine is saying about um, purchases, I also immediately, when I was invited to be a part of this conversation, I, I thought about modernity and technology and everything like that. And I, I was also surprised in reflecting how, how rarely I do hear people coming to me with kind of anguish. I, I would distinguish between regret and remorse, um, remorse having a degree of anguish and almost immobilizing. I I very rarely, I don't know if I've ever heard in the, you know, couple years that I've been practicing, um, remorse around purchases and and technology. But I do hear regret around broken relationships and moving forward around divorce. Um, And in that case, we try and enable people to come to terms with regret, not to deny it, not to say, oh, don't regret, um, because it's a very real part of life. And it's a necessary building block in, in, in growing and moving forward.
0: Rabbi Matt Soffer, rabbi at Temple Israel in Boston. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kara. Cicela Bach, currently a senior visiting fellow at Harvard and writer of, amongst other books, Lying, Moral Choice in Private and Public Life. Thank you for being here.
7: Well, I was delighted to be here.
0: And Catherine Schultz, journalist and author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Thanks for joining us.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That's going to do it for us this afternoon. Thanks so much to my guests. I hear Edith Piaf taking us out. We'll be back tomorrow at noon with an hour on summer reading. We open up the phone lines and get to your recommendations. And stay with us now for the Callie Crossley Show coming up next. It's an hour of jazz and an exploration of just how important Boston musicians have been in the development of the uniquely American art form. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at wgbh.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Cara Miller. Stay dry out there and have a great afternoon.